We humans are creatures of the land, who usually observe the sea from above its surface. Beneath the surface, though, the sea looks, sounds and feels like a distinct and unique environment. The poet Sarah Hymas invites us beneath the waves to perceive the sea and the interrelationship between the sea and the land, between it and us, in deep and immersive ways. This talk was recorded as part of the series Late Summer Lectures in 2017, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. I am underwater in part when I remove my prescription glasses and the world blurs. In a reversal of deep-sea divers equipping themselves with optics to direct their vision in the oceanic realm, I decentralise to a whole-body perception, one I navigated by during the first four years of my life before my myopia was diagnosed. As a child, newly furnished with prescription glasses, I used to relish removing them to revert to a world of blended edges denied to me by sharpened focus. Displacing the new corrected vision, I embraced a looser, more open perspective. In this world, it isn't so much the thing I am looking at, but its broader relationship to others. Everything melds into swathes of light, colour and patterns, rather than distinct dimensional elements. Everything, when blurred, appears deeper, more resonant somehow, than when sharpened by prescription lenses. Visibility is poor at depth, and many creatures who inhabit the sea use sonar, biomagnetism and bright light, rather than detailed sight, to hunt, migrate and attract mates. <coughs> My hearing, although not brilliant, becomes more acute without my glasses. My focus swivels from directionally narrow to a softer, wider, peripheral sense, taking in what feels close to 360 degrees. My limbs and torso are sensitised to movement and temperature, whatever else occupies my immediate space. This is a diffused mode of perception, one acknowledging the pores that cover our body, that makes our skin the receptive two-way membrane it is, rather than giving prominence to a perception converging at the eyes that lead the brain to interpretation, one perhaps more active in a sub-aquatic environment. This, of course, is an imaginative leap not necessarily logical. Although I agree with David Abram when he says the perceiving body does not calculate logical probabilities, it lends its imagination to things in order to see them more fully. It is this fuller mode of perception I am interested in. I come to this subject as a poet, one seeking to raise awareness of the sea's ecology and the interrelationship between it and us. In her call to reshape traditional stories, to reconfigure the hierarchy between people and their wider environment, Donna Haraway suggests we keep the edges open and greedy for surprising new and old connections and gather up the complexities. The blur of myopia offers a device by which to extend the actuality of what I see and my engagement with it.
It offers an alternative, possibly more creative, certainly more embodied perception. Its edges are, by force of circumstance, loose and incomplete. This, as I've suggested, opens me to imagining the experience of deep sea from land. This thinking around my myopia and how it informs my experience and practice has been stimulated by reading Merleau-Ponty's Phenomenology of Perception. For the most part, we perceive the sea as surface. With or without glasses, I read its movement in light and shadow, where squalls of wind darken patches and swirls curl across otherwise sparkling level areas. My perception widens, drawing in this field of light. Merleau-Ponty suggests in order to apprehend lighting as lighting, the perceiver must not seize on it with his gaze. The nature of light, its movement, is made evident in its play on the sea's surface. My gaze cannot settle on it any more than it can fix on a particular point on the ocean. I am to accept its movement, let it slide before and beyond me. The practice of whole body perception, the synthesis of senses I employ without glasses, is evident. The tactility of wind, sounds of birds and water, the sea's flux as manifest in tidal flow, surface and deep ocean currents, their up and down wellings, all ensure this ability to fix on either the sea or a single instant perception of it. The longer I engage with the sea, the wider my perception opens. This opening is an unfixable exchange with the sea, is the first step in engaging what Deleuze explored through his theory of becoming. My term, becoming sea, is inspired by Rosie Bredotti's Deleuzean wording, becoming earth, which she describes as a term for reconfiguring the relationship to our complex habitat with the earth, our middle and common ground. Becoming sea brings to the fore a place that is traditionally not seen as middle, common or ground. It embraces the Deleuzean concept of deterritorialization, <coughs> one element in becoming which dismantles the seeming dichotomy between things. I will anchor this paper to the, this one aspect of the concept that Deleuze explored for 40 years. One illustration Deleuze and his co-author Guattari use for deterritorialization is of an orchid replicating its pollinator who then re-territorializes it, transforming it back to flower by pollinating it. It is a two-way deterritorialization. Both wasp and orchid are affected. The wasp is liber a liberated piece of the orchid's reproduction system, the orchid appearing as wasp. I find this breakdown and recreation of states of being as sites of flux dependent on external and internal relations evocative of how myopia deterritorializes me and how I perceive the sea as an ongoing, unfixed process. My understanding does not reach an end point or closure, but is ungraspable. The deterritorialization <coughs> continues when the sea becomes a poem, in my experience, the poet engages with sea in sight, body and understanding. She is deterritorialized by it and deterritorializes it as a poem. The poem is not the sea, but captures the forces of sea-ness and of the poet's engagement. It is sea and also the poet. 
It is a site of relative deterritorialization, a joint becoming. The poet absorbs the sea's pace and the sea becomes poet through language, lineation and rhythm. When the poem is read by another, both are re-territorialized, reconstructed as sea and voice and possibly more in the mind of the reader, so encouraging a becoming sea in the reader. This is how, I believe, poetry can act as a phenomenal event. I'll now turn to the specific techniques of the lyric that can bring about a becoming sea. Its field of open edges, lack of fixity and reliance on subtle patterning all appear in the lyric occasions of Jory Graham, where the gauge is long and embodied. Throughout her collection Sea Change, Graham makes many references to seeing, eyes, what is blurred, what is invisible, exploring how trustworthy sight is, how we can see the invisible, the future, or a distant sea, which, it could be argued, is one in the same. These are the opening lines from Futures. I own you, says my mind. Own what? Own whom? I look up. Own the looking at us, say the cuttlefish, branchings, lichen black, moist, also the seeing, which wants to feel more than it sees. Also, in the glance, the feeling of ownership, accordioning out and up, sea fanning. And there is cloud on the blue ground up there, and wind which the eye loves so deeply it would spill itself out and liquefy to pay for it. Here, Graham differentiates between looking, a glance, and seeing. Looking is distinguished by the act of intellectual interpretation, owned, as is the glance, the brief capture of a scene that makes it distinct. The seeing, however, is an embodied experience, which wants to feel more than it sees. Her distinction highlights this paper's exploration in how working to see necessitates a deeper engagement with an environment that moves beyond a proprietorial perspective to one that moves in and down, that opens both the viewer and subsequent reader of a poem. Deleuze Guattari used another image for deterritorialization, saying, becoming is a rhizome. This subterranean growth, creating sites both connected and at a remove from its genesis, is perhaps too terrestrially bound for the purposes of this paper. I suggest planktonic activity. Plankton fuse with neighbouring cells to, to create long spirals of growth that eventually break off to form new chains, a model with no specific origin or end. Such reterritorialization is the emergence of a new thing, not a distinct object, but subject of the original. There is no subject-object relationship in a becoming. Becoming C requires, as any becoming does, a decentralized subjectivity on the part of the poem's protagonist. So every subject develops a multiplicitous subjectivity where separation and integrity work simultaneously. Phytoplankton, as microscopic plants, are, if not invisible, then elusive. A gesture towards the ineffability of consciousness or pulse of a poem, one that travels from sea to poet to poem to reader to sea. 
phytoplankton too, I think is worth noting, are primary producers of the world's oxygen. Witnessing what we see alongside how we see encourages a depersonalization that opens us to the possibility of shifting subjectivity. Graham's lines describe such a loosening of subjectivity, moving from physical to intellectual to conscious self. The authority of the self is disrupted. Bredotti calls for such radical repositioning on the part of the subject, and certainly Graham extends this by incorporating the cuttlefish into the act of looking. They appear to know more than the protagonist, or enable the self to see through them, so creating new knowledge of the self. This exchange brings the sea into the protagonist's perception which is developed through the negotiation of a deal where the value of seeing is equal to an eye liquefying. As such, its salinity and corporeality supersede it as intellectual apparatus. This liquefying of sight, reminiscent of the blur of myopia, draws the eye and the sea into a proximity so intense it overlaps animal with plant, brain with growth, sea with sky. The deterritorialization of a poem is further pushed by the deterritorialization of its language, creating what Deleuze Guattari called a circulation of intensities. The disruption of language short circuits the intellectual pathways that it serves to codify, feeding into the embodied proximity between the various subjects of the lyric of becoming sea. Certainly, Graham is interested in language's capacity for this short-circuiting. It was the resistance of the poem, its occlusion or difficulty that was healing me, forcing me to privilege my heart, she says, my intuition, parts of my sensibility infrequently called upon in my everyday experience in the marketplace of things and ideas. I found myself feeling, as the poem ended, that some crucial muscle that might have otherwise atrophied from lack of use had been exercised, something part body, part spirit. This part body, part spirit suggests a dialogue between and beyond the protagonist and poem. Images within a poem manifest through the disruption of logic, so are intuited or felt. The word spirit itself is ineffable, that which is beyond, free-floating perhaps. Deleuze expresses this by saying, in art and in painting as in music, it is not a matter of reproducing or inventing forms, but of capturing forces. The forces Graham's search reaches for in sea change are the dynamic between individual and their wider ecology. Her language challenges its own certainty. It becomes precarious as it is articulated. Boundaries are necessarily dissolved as conditions prove simultaneously true. To intensify this cycle, Graham sets her language against lines extending and foreshortening in space, creating physical destabilization. Here it is now, carrying its North Atlantic windfall, hissing, consider the body of the ocean, which rises every instant into me and its ancient evaporation, how it delivers itself to me, how the world is our law, this indrifting of us 
into us, a chorusing in us of elements and how the intermingling of us lacks intelligence, makes reverberation, syllables, untranscribable, inclingings, and how wonder is also what pours from us. Just as seas cannot be contained by our names for them, here words are split by line breaks, interrupted, disjointed, stressed on unexpected syllables. Sense is remade by sound. The line containing only me and it compresses sea with the protagonist's body and the precariousness of this dynamic is contained through the suspension of its single short line surrounded by all that space. This merging of the distant sea and protagonist, their thoughts of it and implications of the carbon cycle are reinforced by the repetition of the prefix in. The sea is drawn into the body of the poem as well as our reading of it. We know this is not the sea, but feel it is as such through our reading to hold and let go of the sounds that underpin the words. So we feel more than we see, the instant, indrifting, intermingling, intelligence, inclingings, all chorusing in us. Such a piling up creates a visceral energy that at first seems to resist the intelligence, instead replicating a sensation that pushes beyond an external visual image. This enables the poem to touch us as reverberation, where syllables are untranscribable, drawing us as reader into this becoming, the re-territorialization of sea. In a becoming sea, the proximity of subject to subject extends to the temporal zone, by which I mean the sea exists simultaneously in past, present and future, carrying water through its tides, surface and deep sea currents, whatever we see at the shore's edge. Here, in full fathom, Graham presents a blurring of those temporalities as well as distances. And sea swell, hiss of incomprehensible flat distance, blue long-fingered ocean and it's nothing else, nothing in the above visible except water, water, and always the white self-destroying bloom of wave break and up close royal and here on what's left of land ticking of stays against empty flagpoles low tide free day nothing being memorialized here today memories float yes over the place but not memories any of us now among the living possess as with all the poems in Sea Change, line lengths refuse to settle between the long lines of tradition and shorter lines of modernist experiment. The first line of the extract and the poem sets the rhythm, the long rolling metre that through its two colons does not allow the reader to alight on a subject, but seek through the reading what the subject might be. Beginning with the conjunction adds to the sense we have already missed something and may never catch up. Repetitions of words never and water and memories both punctuate and seem to dissemble the rhythm. The stays on the boats tick as if a clock, layered by the tide times and then the movement of the sun through day. 
all in the one line, enfolded into the push and pull against the space of the page. These measurings of time are set in one of the longer lines and give way to the thought of memories, past time floating on the surface of the water, of the mind of the living, reinforcing the notion of the sea, not as an object, but as a continual happening. Graham has said how she plays with the sentences desire for closure, desire for suspension of closure, desire for simultaneity in a stream of temporal action that defies simultaneity. Everything is happening in the now of the extract, creating a sense of urgency. The future is already upon us. Which is another deterritorialization, one that demands we reconsider how we perceive becoming similar open sites of discovery to the poems discussed tonight. Becoming is an emergent process, an ongoing engagement with the self and the interaction between internal and external forces of other entities. Graham's thinking is in process throughout her poems, creating poems that embody and encourage open-ended conceptual and phenomenological forces. As such, the crossings of boundaries and subjectivities have the potential to situate the sea in a framework of daily life and in connection with the land, rather than take it as a primary singular setting. And this could go in some way in readdressing the anthropocentric and binary narratives we have built around the sea and its so-called resources, moving us towards a becoming sea where, I would hope, the consciousness of such poems travels as a chain of plankton, so inhale it activates new awareness of our endangered ocean and our binding link with it. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.